Welcome to Lawyerly, the podcast for lawyers and those who love them. I'm your host, Sean Kennedy of Pereira Purdy. Today's episode of Lawyerly is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Array. Array manages the logistics of litigation so lawyers can focus on winning their cases. Learn more at trustarray.com. That's trustarray.com. Today, we are continuing our How Are We Doing Now series, where we talk with lawyers who used to work for a law firm called Howry, which was a big, successful firm with over 700 lawyers before it suddenly dissolved and fell into bankruptcy in 2011. In this episode, we're catching up with another former Howry lawyer, Andrea Maldonado-Weiss, talking about her experiences of Howry's collapse and what's happened with her since. If you're interested in landmark Supreme Court cases, or you just like your prepackaged salads, you're going to want to hear from Andrea. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Lawyerly. I'm joined today by Andrea Maldonado-Weiss, who is now General Counsel at Bonduel Fresh Americas. Welcome, Andrea. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. I suspect that many of our listeners may not have heard of Bonduel, but they probably know at least one of the company's brands. Um, tell us a bit about Bonduel and what it does. Sure, Sean. Uh, Bonduel Fresh Americas is the entity formerly known as Ready Pack Foods, Inc. We are a um, producer, processor of um, produce products. Um, most famous brand is Ready Pack Bistro Bowls. They ready to eat salad bowls that you can buy at the market that have, you know, a leafy green base and topping, uh, topper tray with toppings on it. Um, those are, that's sort of our flagship brand, but we also have, um, we, we manufacture snacks. We also do, um, bagged salad kits and clamshells like, you know, spinach clamshells, that kind of thing. And a large part of um, our production is also for food service. So we do, for example, shredded lettuce for Subway. And um, we also have uh, a lot of our customers are retailers that have their own private label brands. And so some of our product that we, that we sell is under private label. So you sort of white label the vegetables to other manufacturers? We actually, we are the ones who manufacture, we, the, we still manufacture the product, but we label it with the retailer's label. So for example, uh, Walmart's market side brand, uh, Salad Bowls, we are one of the producers, the, the manufacturers that makes that salad. Okay. Um, so are your products sold all over the country then? Our products are sold all over the U.S., and we have a little bit of um, sales into Canada, and we're uh, expanding that market as much as we can. So Bonduel, tell me about that, that company. Bonduel is a French entity um, that acquired Ready Pack Foods in 2017, and um, the Bonduel entity, the parent company in France has been around for, I'm going to get this wrong, but it's something over 150 years. They've, oh, wow. um, they have a very resilient history, um, you know, gotten through all the wars and all of that. And they're, they're a, um, a family name in France and in Europe. They're very well known, uh, exclusively basically in the vegetable space, but, um, they started as canned good manufacturers and that business has grown. Now they have you know, a portfolio of products, including fresh, canned, and frozen. And so we are Bonduel Fresh Americas because we are the fresh side of the business. We have a sister company in Canada that does the canned and frozen. Um, there's And then there's other entities in Brazil and, and in Europe that do uh, various parts of the portfolio as well. Does any of the Bonduel canned goods make it over to America? Um I do think that there's some sold in in the U.S., but not um, not here locally, not here in California. And there's a couple of other brands that they have, and I should really know a little bit more. But um, I've only been here since November, so I don't fully know our <laughs> whole <laughs> I don't fully know our whole uh, product portfolio across the group yet. But I am aiming to learn it. <laughs> I did see that you guys sell ratatouille, which 
I don't even know what it is aside from the movie, but I think <laughs> mixed veggies is my guess, and that's uh, you're probably talking about in the canned yeah category, yeah. So yeah. that would be probably our Canadian sister company. So you're the general counsel of the U.S. operation. I am the general counsel of the U.S. operation. I am uh, a member of the executive team here um, for our U.S. entity. Uh, from time to time, I will um, advise our Canadian company as well. And I have sort of a dotted line reporting relationship, I guess, with legal in France. So I um, you know, collaborate with my colleagues there, with the general counsel there to um, help ensure that we are carrying out the group's policies throughout our entity. It's an interesting arrangement. So you're, how do your responsibilities for the uh, United States entity kind of overlap with what you do with you know, the global entity? <laughs> That's a good question. So I think that there's, um, you know, it's, I've learned a lot about um, the difference in sort of the regulatory and oversight scheme between European entities, particularly French entities and, and the U.S., they are very highly regulated in the sense that they're controlled a lot by regulatory entities and that is enforced through audits. So they can have audit audits of compliance with laws even when there is no suspicion of non-compliance. So it's a little different from what what we're used to here. Whereas here, you know, if the regulators come in, you usually have an issue. And our sort of stick is um, litigation. So it's a little bit different, right? They're not so accustomed to litigation and we're not so accustomed to the idea of this regulatory constant oversight. Um, a lot of what we're doing now, because uh, our entity is fairly new to the group, is kind of bringing us up into their standard or making sure that everything that we have in place meets the requirements that they're required to meet since we're part of their company. Um, so that's some of what I do in terms of the, my work with my colleagues in France is ensuring that our policies are consistent with what um, they have determined we need to do in terms of compliance. And how that sort of crosses over into my work as general counsel here is that really a lot of times they're what you would call best practices, right? So if you want to ensure that you are, for example, doing diligence on every one of your suppliers before you bring them on board, that's um, what they have determined to be a best practice in terms of their compliance needs in France. But it, for us, it's really a best practice in terms of doing business and also risk management and making sure that we are doing the right thing here. So um, while there's a good part of my work that is sort of um, related to what I call the group requirements, it's also just it's helpful because it helps me assess where we may have gaps and, and address them. Do you have to navigate sort of the different uh, data requirements, security requirements, privacy with the kind of European regime? Yeah, we do. Um, there's, you know, that sort of a, a bit of an open question of whether things like GDPR apply to data that we handle here in the U.S. Of course, we're um, not, you know, a data heavy company. We're not direct to consumers, so we don't handle as many as much consumer data. Um, but there have certainly been occasions where we've had interactions relating to that and have had to address whether um, what we were doing was up to par or what else we needed to do or whether we needed to apply foreign uh, regimes to what we're doing here. And um, thankfully, some of my work in the tech world came in handy for that. <laughs> I'm curious to hear what it's been like for your company to navigate the COVID-19 crisis. For most of us, this is the first time in our lives when we've given any thought to the food supply chain. And, you know, and now we're faced with local shortages of certain things. Even six months in, it's not uncommon to go to the grocery store and see an entire section empty. And so now I think a lot of us are thinking more about that. And I wonder how, how you've had to kind of navigate that. Yeah, absolutely. We've been so, you know, uh, a lot of us laymen are thinking about it for the first time. And for us, it's been um, a day in and day out thinking since the crisis started. So we've 
um, from the beginning, we gathered our um, crisis team together, which really is composed of basically the heads of every function to determine um, what impact the crisis was having and what impact it may have. And we've had um, all kinds of issues arise. So between, you know, for example, we we all know that some of the meat meat plants and um, particular like Smithfield, you know, the pork uh, manufacturing was highly affected. And some of that product goes into our our product. So whenever there are issues in another industry, um, we think about how it's going to end up, whether it's going to end up affecting us. And we've had to trigger contingency um, plans or even just being on the lookout, being constantly thinking about, could there be a shortage? What we have found has been really, really helpful in that regard is to be in constant communication. So from from early on, we, de- we deployed a communication heavy plan on both sides of our supply chain. So both toward our suppliers and toward our customers. And so that we could have continue to have the confidence of our customers and so that we could um, be alerted as early as possible if there were ever any issues in the supply chain and be able to be reactive and responsive to it. I'm really happy to say we haven't actually had an issue arise where we've had, um, you know, a huge delay or anything like that because of it. But I think it really is a credit to our proactivity. Um there's also been a lot of creativity that's gone into it, you know, a lot of ways of minimizing the impact that we've had to come up with, including, for example, hey, do we streamline um, what products we offer so that we can offer the products that we are able to make a lot of, for example, and keep our customers in supply without um, having to, you know, short them on some of those smaller SKUs that don't sell a lot. Uh, so I've actually, you know, learned a ton myself about the supply chain, about how to manage those types of issues. Um, and then there's the other piece of it that has really impacted us. It's just been on the labor side, you know. So while uh, we all know that essential businesses were able to stay open and um, a, a huge part of that is all these food manufacturing sites and ours are are part of that. We have four plants in the U.S., one in California, two in New Jersey, and one in Georgia, and we kept them all running. And um, we had to very quickly think about what is the safest way to keep the, the sites running? What PPE do we need? What um, what do we need to do on the manufacturing side? Do we slow down the lines? Do we move people around? Do we change shifts? All kinds of questions like that. Um, and keeping not just obviously regulatory guidance in mind, but also um, common sense and logical thinking in trying to do it. And so that's been a, a huge undertaking that is ongoing because, you know, cases continue in the U.S. and we're continuing to have uh, employees from time to time who are positive and we have to um, address those situations. And we don't want to have a situation in our hands where we end up having to shut down a facility And that's not just because we want to continue to operate and continue to sell our product, but because we we take to heart the notion that we're an essential industry and that we have to continue to try to help feed America through the crisis. Yeah. Have you seen that kind of uh, spike in demand in general because people are eating at home more often? Yeah, it's funny, you know, at the beginning, you remember all the empty shelves, and I think there was kind of a resurgence of empty shelves recently. Um, What's interesting about that is it was people buying um, canned and frozen food when they were buying food, they weren't buying fresh produce. Right. Um, And so we actually kind of saw a little bit of a dip, you know, whereas uh, the canned good manufacturers were, were doing a lot better. Um, But we've seen we've seen it started to come back up and, and um, I think maybe people are getting used to the new normal. Maybe folks are realizing, okay, you know, I, I'm going to have to eat salads at home. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not leaving home anytime soon. Um, So it's stabilizing in terms of demand, but um, we didn't have that huge spike like other companies did. People are starting to throw in some salads with their frozen pizzas and Trying to get rid of those COVID-19 pounds. Yes. Uh, So you arrived at Bondwell in 
November 19, uh, just before really all of this came down, have you sort of been thrown right into the fire then? Yes. My, um, my arrival story is actually something that we still laugh about quite frequently at the company. The day that I joined um, Bondwell Fresh Americas was the day that we had a recall uh, due to the E. coli crisis, the coli, oh. e. coli outbreak in Romaine pro- products. So our product had unfortunately been connected to one of the E. coli cases and um, I actually received the call a couple days before from a couple of our executives asking, asking me to, um, to jump in. And the day that I started at the company, I had barely walked, uh, you know, started my HR orientation and was <laughs> being walked to my office when my CEO's um, assistant swept me away into our war room <laughs> um, where I camped out the next two days and assisted, you know, with the recall and with everything else having to do with the Romaine advisory, which was in quite a huge impact. It's, it's a big impact on our business and the industry as a whole. And so from day one, I was really in in the fire, um, in crisis management mode. And, you know, we joke about not having really left that mode. Um, so it's been a lot of thinking on my feet. But I think the the thing that I like to say, it's kind of the best way to start the company because I immediately um, got to know everyone. Um, they got to learn a lot about me and the way that I work and, and my strengths and one of the places where I thrive is um, under pressure. So that's worked out well. We'll see how it goes when it's a little more routine and boring. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm curious from your perspective in the food industry, what, what's an underappreciated part of what farmers do? Oh, man, that's, that's a great question. You know, and I, I don't know if this is underappreciated. I feel like I've always sort of thought about it, but I think that the, um, the physical labor of component is, you know, not to be underestimated. I, um, before, before the lockdown started, um, I had the fortune of going out to, um, Yuma where we do our growing and harvesting in the winter and got to see our fields firsthand. And it's just, you know, it's really a thing that you cannot, you cannot imagine unless you see it in person. It's so gorgeous and beautiful, and and they dedicate so much time and effort toward growing the the plants, but then also you know harvesting it. Um, and one of the things that I was really impressed by was just the the knowledge, the deep deep knowledge. Um, you wouldn't believe how much thinking goes into every crop and what makes the crop good, and how do we improve it. Um, and I'm not talking about like GMO or anything like that, but just looking for different varieties, uh, knowing what consumers are looking for, uh, what our customers prefer too. It's actually a ton of work and a lot of really um, intellectual thinking that I didn't realize went into into all of it until I had the opportunity to talk with some of um, our team in Yuma and learn a little bit more about it. That's interesting. Uh, I know from your background, you have some expertise on the product labeling side and disputes. Is that something you've had to put to use at Bondwell? Yeah. So as you know, when I was at Howry and, and at Mayor Brown, I did um, a lot of food labeling, um, consumer class action defense work and learned quite a bit about the regulations that apply to food labeling back then. And that's come in handy on that angle. So we haven't had I haven't had to manage that kind of litigation. We haven't had those kinds of cases, but I do counsel our marketing team um, on marketing claims. And I also um, work with, uh, we have a a director of regulatory who is really the expert on all the FDA and USDA regulations, but we work together to um, ensure that we have compliance on labels and there are always new rules, you know, uh, coming out. So we have, for example, the bioengineering rule is, uh, has been issued and will go into effect um, in 2022. So we're working toward that and I'm heavily involved in that kind of thing. So that, you know, the litigation background I, on, on that end, I think, has just given me the ability to issue spot and, um, and to know enough about the regulatory scheme that I can, that I can know where we need 
to dig in further, and it's come in very handy. So before Bondwell, you had another in-house legal position at Nation Builder. Take it, tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, it was very different. It wasn't in the food industry. Um, Nation Builder is a tech company. They're a all-in-one um, software platform used by political advocacy groups, political campaigns um, to manage their data and grow their grow their campaigns. Really, um, so the product has an integrated email system, database management system, website, everything all in one integrated. And that's kind of the magic of Nation Builder is that if you are running for office, you can have this piece of software that will help you do everything from email blasts to connecting to social media um, in some ways to, you know, uh, hosting events and selling event tickets, all kinds of things. Um, and that was very different from my background, you know, at the firm, although I had done a little bit of a stint at a different tech company um, as a secondment. Um, but it was when I was at Nation Builder, um, I really learned a lot more about being in-house and worked very closely with our executive team there as well. Um, and so that was a really good first step into the in-house life. What You mentioned a secondment. Now, what is that? A secondment is when, um, you know, at a, when you're at a firm and you basically are loaned out <laughs> to a client to serve as an in-house lawyer for for an amount of time. For me, it was um, Spokio was the company. They're another tech company. And at the time, Mayor Brown was representing Spokio in a case that was in the Supreme Court. It had just gone up to the Supreme Court, actually. No, I take that back. We were um, in the process of trying to get the case into the Supreme Court. And uh, Spokio's general counsel and only lawyer at the time had um, left. And so the firm offered to send an associate to help them with their legal work, but also kind of make sure that the Supreme Court case was being shepherded through from, from in-house, you know, because you need information from the company when you're doing that kind of case. And um, a lot of the work that I had been doing up to that time with our other clients was um, not just litigation, but also more counseling work. And so I think I had sort of the right mix of experience um, for a big law associate. And um, I ended up being selected to, to go work for Spokio for a time. So I went and served as their GC for six months. And then came back to the firm and, and continued doing my work at the firm, but also continued doing some of the GC work for Spokio for another nine months or so until they hired someone. Uh, that's interesting. So you're talking about the Spokio uh, landmark Supreme Court case. Right, you, you were involved with that then? Yes, I actually was only involved as in-house counsel with that case. Before I went to Spokio to work at Spokio, I had not been part of the team that was litigating the case. Um, so I came on board at the company and, um, you know, I mean, I was familiar with the case, but I had to kind of get up to speed on that and help and do the work of the in-house lawyer in assisting the firm um, with bringing the case to the Supreme Court. And then when the case went up for oral argument, I took the trip with the team up there and we went and saw it. And it was an amazing experience. Tell, tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it was, it was really cool because um, I, so I got admitted just so that I could sit at the bar and so um, we went there that morning, got there early, because even if you're a lawyer and you're going to be able to sit with, with the lawyers, you want to get there early to get a seat. So we got there early and, uh, and then there I was sitting like, you know, I don't know, 10 feet away from Justice Sotomayor. It was just sort of um, <laughs> overwhelming, really. You don't, you know, I, I'm, as lawyers, we have a huge appreciation for the Supreme Court, of course. Um, but once you're you're there in person, it, it's something else. You just you kind of awestruck. And um, the case before ours was a criminal case about um, racial bias in jury selection, basically. And it was a fascinating case. So I was captivated by the argument 
in that case, and the press corps was sitting right next to me on my on my left side. Nina Totenberg was right there. I mean, it was just like you know, celebrity for lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I our um, our argument, our lawyers went up to argue. Well, um, Andy Pincus, and Andy Pincus, I think, has argued at that time. It was his twenty fifth argument in front of the Supreme Court. So he's you know a legend. And um, then we had dinner that night and I got to pick his brain all, you know, about the Supreme Court and the justices and everything. It was just a phenomenal experience. I recommend it. Wow. That sounds like a great experience. Did you, so were you around to get the decision then? Yes. Yep. We were, I was still at the firm um, when the decision came down. So that was, you know, quite celebratory. That was a good day. (laughs) (laughs) It was a good day. It was a very good day. (laughs) I imagine. Uh, So when you made the move from big law to in-house, what was that like to make the transition? Um, Yeah. So I think I had the advantage of having done the secondment, you know, and kind of knowing a little bit what I was getting into when I joined Nation Builder, I was actually at the end of my second maternity leave and I never went back to the firm. It was literally the last week of my leave that I got um, the job offer and the GC at Nation Builder at the time had needed someone to come on board very quickly to help get the company up to compliance on GDPR. And I didn't know anything really about GDPR. So I spent the week before I joined kind of like rapidly studying and taking it all in and trying to figure it out Um, and then hit the ground running very much on that project because it was it was very urgent. Like, you know, compliance was a couple of months away or something. And there was quite there was quite a lot to do. But I think having had the experience before with having been at Spokio and also Um, the experience of having worked pretty closely with our clients at the firm um, kind of had helped me already know um, how to advise the business, which I think is really kind of the biggest shift usually for lawyers coming out of firms into in-house. It's, it's a little bit different, right? It's, it's the, um, the lens is how do you get to yes um, and that can be a difficult lens, I think, for for some law firm lawyers. So I I'd already had um, some of that, and that was a really helpful bit of background to have in in making the shift in house. So you'd already gone through the sort of European soccer loan process, and <laughs> now you're returning to the to the market. That's such, that's such a great way to put it. But yeah, I think I had like you know I, that was an advantage having having had that experience. And um, I mean, there's, there's a lot to say about the contrast between big law practice and and practicing in house. But I think that that time at Spokio really was what um, kind of planted the seed for me about wanting to do it long term, you know, because I really enjoyed it. And I loved being in the room uh, for the ideas and helping collaborate with the ideas. And um, helping them think about the things that the angles they haven't thought about, whether, you know, it's risk or, or otherwise, but contributing in that way and helping being somewhere where you are part of building something is, is very cool. And that's what really drove me to want to be in house. Yeah. As a litigator, you're not usually involved with building something. You might be involved with defending something, but that's already built, but uh, not at the ground floor like that. Yeah. And I mean, building a defense, of course. Right. But I think it's just a little different when you're part of the the business team and you're thinking about um, the ways of moving the business forward. And I've had, you know, a taste of that, too, from just working with some of our clients at the firm, too. But um, it's you. And and I think uh, I was fortunate enough to have clients I worked for for a very long time. So I knew their business well. But there is no way to really, really know a business the way you know it once you're in-house and on the ground and you touch every piece of it all day long. Um, And that's actually, I think, the best part of having the in-house lawyer job is that you are kind of in the middle of all the spokes and you get to see everything. And even among the other functions, of course, they interact, but they don't know, they don't get to see every single dirty bit, and I do. So what goes into your decision now 
when you're hiring outside counsel? Well, I'm actually in the process of hiring someone, um, trying to. I'm um, The company has only had one lawyer ever, so this is a big move for us is bringing someone else on. Um, and yeah, I think the biggest thing for me is knowing that um, the lawyer is someone who is capable of being a practical business advisor and being a business partner. And you hear the term business partner a lot. For me, what that means is, are you able to understand the business needs and the strategy and how whatever project's in front of you, whether it's a contract or a piece of litigation or advising on an employment issue, how how that fits into the business strategy and the values that the business has so that you can actually contribute in a way that moves all of that forward. I think that's the most important attribute aside from, you know, all the other things that you, you probably already have, you have the checkbox of, you know, smart and you have some, you're a good lawyer, but you need that certain um, ability to, to assess the business needs. And that's what I, I think is really important to focus on. So that's what I look for more, most as an attribute for the business lawyer to hire. So let's go way back now. When did you first think to yourself, you know what, I want to be a lawyer? (laughs) I have this joke about, I was a latchkey kid and I used to um, watch a lot of Law and Order as a (laughs) latchkey kid, (laughs) you know, in the, in the 90s growing up. Um, But my, my mom really emphasized education a lot. You know, she, she's an immigrant, we're immigrants. And um, I think she thought um, she could have made a lot more of her life had she had the opportunity to receive a good education and go to college. And so she always emphasized that and emphasized having a career and also for me as a woman um, to be independent. And so I think all those principles somewhere along the way led me to conclude that I would that I would want to be a lawyer and and maybe it was partially influenced by watching a lot of Law and Order. And seeing, <laughs> <laughs> it turned out my career is nothing like Law and Order, but you know they were they were portrayed in this amazing way. Um, the lawyers in that show. That's a great show. Yeah. The old the old version. I don't know about the new ones, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, not the crispy uh, versions. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you know it was sometime before high school ended that I had made the decision to become a lawyer and kind of never questioned it ever again. Wow. So then you went on to law school and your first job out of law school was? It was um, at a firm called Howry, where you were my colleague. Yes. Um, All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk about Howry. Lawyerly is brought to you today by our presenting sponsor, Array. With offices throughout the nation, Array is the litigation support partner that delivers speed, accuracy, and unmatched service. Array manages the logistics of litigation, so lawyers can focus on winning their cases. For information on their discovery, managed review, deposition, alternative dispute resolution, and subpoena services, visit trustarray.com. That's trustarray.com. Today's show is also brought to you by eDepose, the electronic exhibit solution for depositions. With eDepose, attorneys can use exhibits during remote depositions just like they do during in-person depositions. The best part? You don't have to learn a whole new process. Just mark, introduce, and distribute personal copies of exhibits to all participants in real time, the same way you always have. Learn more at edepose.com. And now, back to the show. All right, let's talk about your time at Howery. Okay. You spent close to four years working there, right? I did, yes. When you think back on those years, are they fond memories for you? Absolutely. Um, Howery was such a unique and amazing place. I got very, very lucky to start my career there in terms of mentorship and also um, having had the opportunity to meet some of the most amazing people ever 
whom I still call friends. So all my memories of that time are very, very fond. Hmm. What's more, one of the more interesting cases you ever hand, handled at Howry? That's when I started doing the food false advertising litigation work. And one of the cases, and you might, you might have been involved in this, I don't remember, um, that we handled was for uh, Nestle Dryer's The Drumstick Ice Cream. And I, I think it started while we were at Harry, but it definitely went to appeal when we were at Mayor Brown. So it kind of crossed firms, but um, it was interesting because <laughs> the allegations were so absurd. It was something <laughs> along the lines of um, on the back of the drumstick box, there's a story about the 1924 World's Fair and how the, the vendor that was selling ice cream ran out of, I guess, bowls or something and decided to use the next door uh, vendor's waffles to make, to put the ice cream in them. So that's how the drumstick was born. And it was called the original drumstick on the package. And the allegations were something like, you are, you know, giving off the sense that this is a more wholesome product than other ice cream products. <laughs> product. I just thought it was so funny. Like, I will never forget it. Um, so that was one of the more interesting cases. Um, but I also really enjoyed, I got to do some work early on for foster farms that was on the plaintiff's side and, and litigate some cases from that angle. And that was really, really interesting to me because we were used to being defense lawyers um, and that was definitely a different perspective. So that was fun. So how about what's your, one of your favorite Howry memories? Oh, geez. I don't know if that's fair. Um, <laughs> there's so many, honestly. One of. <laughs> one of. One yeah. of them would be, well, for sure, boot camp. Boot camp was amazing, just unbelievable. I think you were there when we were playing poker at like four in the morning. <laughs> Probably, yes. Yes. <laughs> so that that's one of the best memories. You know, we had such, um, for me, it was, Amazing to be able to be learning so much and doing, you know, working with all these really great litigators and trial lawyers and learning from them, but also just that the firm would would think to put folks together in that kind of setting where you're basically at camp, litigation <laughs> camp for a couple of weeks, and you really get to bond. And um, that was just so much fun. Like I said earlier, I kind of, I feel like I'm I'm built for these sort of like intense situations and it's a very intense situation boot camp. So um, that's definitely one of my favorite memories. And then interestingly, I actually think even though the dissolution of Harry is a really, really sad thing, that time period when, when the firm was sort of falling apart, um, we actually had a lot of fun at that time. We, we, we bonded a lot and so that's actually one of the my favorite favorite memories of being there as well. So is this sort of a gallows humor kind of <laughs> kind of bonding, or how did that work? Um, yes and no. I think part of it was just um, well, like you said, I was only there four years, so I was really actually quite junior when the firm dissolved, and maybe even though. I think we all had a certain level of stress about it. Maybe in my immaturity and youthfulness, I wasn't as terrified of the whole thing as a lot of people could, could have been or might have been. And so maybe I was taking it a little bit more in stride. Um, but I think once we knew, and there came a time when we kind of knew that's where it was heading, and we were all figuring out what's next, where do we go, and everybody was kind of sorting out um, what firms and and interviewing and things like that, then we all collectively were not doing as much work because we were waiting to do that work at another firm or, or because we had to get extensions just by nature of what was happening. So we had a lot of time to like sit down and have long lunches and happy hours and talk and bond and fret about the situation together. And, and that made it really special. You know, it's anytime you go through a difficult situation with people you bond. And so I think maybe that's why I say we had a good time. <laughs> yeah, I can see that at sort of toward the end when it's like a long goodbye almost. 
Yeah, exactly. And we kind of knew, even though some of us ended up working together, we that we all wouldn't be together anymore. And we had, you know, in LA, we had such a special group of people, um, a large group of associates that we were all super close. I mean, it wouldn't be unusual for six of us to go to lunch together. And um, later in my career, I realized that that's <laughs> very atypical. Um, so yeah, it is sort of like a long goodbye. And it's, it's a really, it's really nice to know that, um, that we had such strong connections that we could go through all of that together. I think that's what I've heard from a lot of people over the years is that with perspective, with distance, you do realize how unique the culture, the environment, the friendships, all that was. Yeah, for sure. I don't think it took me very long distance <laughs> to realize. <laughs> because even though, you know, my next job was with some Howry folks, um, I remember <laughs> very distinctly uh, a few weeks into my next firm sending an email to um, like the mid mid and senior level associates whom I had met, there weren't that many of us in the office anyway. Um, on a Friday, that was something like, hey, anyone down to have a drink? And like this kind of email at Howry on a Friday afternoon would have triggered 10 yeses. <laughs> no one re replied, <laughs> ever. <laughs> uh, it was like a Dorothy moment. You know, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, so before uh, this episode airs, we're going to air um, an episode where I talk to Dale. Gialli. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, so by the time people hear this, they'll have heard that one as well. Uh, so you you left and went to work with, with Dale. I did. I went um, with Mike Resch and Dale and um, Carmen Zarlinga. And, uh, there were in Adam Hughes also in DC and Steve Medlock. That was probably our group. So three of them in DC and then three of us in LA. So what was a career highlight for you then post Howery, aside from the Spokeo thing we talked about? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> that might have to be it. I, going to the Supreme court was pretty amazing career highlight at, Post Howry, post Howry, um, before leaving the firm, or, or yeah, let's say that. Let's say that. <laughs> um, okay, I think there was a a case that we had brought on behalf of Foster Farms, and I I think this is all public information. Where um, Foster Farms sued its former maintenance manager for fraud in a very 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 outrageous fraudulent scheme. And the case was very difficult to prove because of how long the passage of time and just the, you know, the fraudulent acts are meant to hide fraudulent acts. Um, and in the, um, and I had a primary responsibility for that case and it was messy and it was difficult and we had all these depositions and there were a lot of, very shady people involved. Um, and in the end, we ended up um, reaching a really good settlement, a great settlement. And I was eight months pregnant <laughs> and, <laughs> and in a um, mediation in, um, in the chambers, the judges chambers, like we mediated at court, basically like on the eve of trial um, with Carmen and with the client. And um, it was just a very a very good feeling of accomplishment. It had been very difficult. I had been driving back and forth from here to the Central Valley where Foster Farms is and where all the witnesses are for all the depots, all the hearings and everything. Again, very pregnant and staying up incredibly late, many, many nights. Um, and we succeeded. You know, the settlement was actually a success and that was um, a huge accomplishment. That's one that I really remember. It's always nice when you feel like you're you you're wearing the white hat and you get the victory. Absolutely, definitely. It was it was amazing. So I'm going to ask you a few more sort of rapid fire questions before we end. Okay. 
What's your favorite thing to do to unwind? I don't know if this is unwinding, but my favorite and perhaps only hobby is working out. Um, and I have a, a pretty intense workout habit. Um, and it really, it, I guess it is unwinding because it, it helps a lot with stress relief and with making me a more focused and mindful person generally. So I would say that's what it is. Are you talking like CrossFit or um, <laughs> So about a year and a half ago, I picked up this um, love for Les Mills Body Combat. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's essentially kickboxing. Les Mills is a workout franchise born in uh, New Zealand. And my local gym has it. Of course, I haven't been to the gym in what feels like eons now. But um, it's very, very, very high energy, super intense cardio, lots of kicking and punching, and also conditioning like, you know, push-ups and all kinds of things. And um, when I started doing it, I couldn't even get through a single class. (laughs) And and now um, I'm known to work out for like two hours in a row whenever I possibly can get those two hours. So it's really changed my life. It's been unbelievable. And that's, that's my favorite, but now I do all kinds of things. I do, um, Les Mills body pump also, which is basically weight training and I run, I, I swim whenever I, whenever I can. Um, I'd like to do more biking, but my bike is broken. (laughs) (laughs) And my goal is to hopefully do the Malibu triathlon next year. Oh, wow. That's impressive. So the lesson there is don't mess with Andrea. I don't know. (laughs) I can probably just out endure a lot of people, but I don't know. (laughs) Do you have a favorite lawyer joke? Oh, no. No, I don't. I hate lawyer jokes. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to tell you one, even though you hate it. (laughs) Uh, Why does New Jersey have the highest amount of toxic waste? Well, California (laughs) has the highest amount of lawyers. (laughs) Why? New Jersey had the first draft pick. Okay, that's a good one. So speaking of draft picks, you're a Lakers fan, right? A huge Lakers fan. So how do you live with yourself? <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> I'm a, you know, we're recording this episode on um, the day after the Lakers lost their third game against um, the Nuggets. So I'm not feeling great today about it, but I'm, I, I'm confident. I think, I think you'll recover. what's your position on lawyer shows um well you heard me about law and order so um i kind of love them um not you know not all are made equal but and i know that the critique by lawyers is like it's never really that way i'm like of course but nothing is you know neither is er um it's kind of fun it's it's also fun to nitpick them (laughs) so i kind of like them do you have a favorite line from a lawyer movie? Oh my God. So my favorite lawyer movie is my cousin Vinny. And yes. um, anytime that <laughs> that is possible, I will, I will try to quote, but that Utes line is really funny. <laughs> uh, there are so many lines from that one. That's yeah, a good one. It's really good. Uh, do you play any musical instruments? Oh, no. So my greatest sadness in life is that I have... My only musical talent of sorts is dancing, but I cannot play any instruments or sing. And I'm so sad about that because I would have loved in another life to be on Broadway. Oh, wow. Well, if you had to learn one instrument, what would you pick? I think the piano because it's very versatile and, you know, it feels like a, a hobby you could keep doing for a long time and bust out at random cocktail parties. So piano. Yeah, it's always in- impressive when somebody just sits yeah. down at a party and just starts playing some beautiful song. You're like, wow. It's so classy, too. I mean, like, you know, mm-hmm. classier than I am. So maybe I'm aspiring to be classier. <laughs> What's one thing you've learned about yourself during the COVID crisis? Oh, wow. Um, hmm. I, you know, I've always known that I'm an extrovert. <laughs> and. And I'm becoming a little more accustomed to the isolation, but it was really difficult in the beginning. And I I really, it highlighted for me how much I need that human contact and, um, but also maybe that 
maybe that I need to work on that a little bit and, and be okay with being by myself. So I've been, like I said, I've been getting better at it, but I, I really <laughs> learned, I really learned how much of my energy is derived from, from being around other people. Yeah. This has to be the hardest on extroverts. For yeah, I mean, sure. my, my introvert friends are like, I'm dying to go out. <laughs> I imagine how you feel. And I'm, you know, but I send like really pathetic texts to my friends. Like, FaceTime with me. It's not, it's Introverts not are like, yeah, this is a little bit too much. It's too much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> extrovert's like, I'm dying. <laughs> and the, the, you know, the other thing that I think I learned about myself is I was worried about not being able to keep up the working out while here, you know, not having the gym, but I, I've been really disciplined about it and able to do it even though it's in my very hot garage. So, um, I learned that I really have picked that up as like what is hopefully a lifelong habit, which makes me really happy. That's great. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been great having you on the show, Andrea. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sean. It's been really great being here. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Andrea Maldonado-Weiss for joining us. And thanks as well to our presenting sponsor, Array. You can learn more about Array at trustarray.com. And thanks as well to our show sponsor, Edipose. Join us again next time as we continue the How Are You Doing Now series here on the Lawyerly Podcast. Do us a favor and subscribe to Lawyerly and help us get the word out by giving Lawyerly a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Production services for today's episode are by Four Hours of Sleep, and the music for the show is by Rhythmic Revival. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Kennedy of Herrera Purdy.